Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our guest today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is Veronica Monet, and she's the author of a book that we're going to be discussing. The book is called Sex Secrets of Escorts. Veronica Monet graduated with honors from Oregon State University and has training in Tantra, human sexuality, and ancient sacred prostitution. Monet has more than a decade's experience with the practical and political aspects of sex work, having worked as an erotic model, a porn actress, a prostitute, an escort, and a courtesan. Her political activism has included memberships with Bay Area Bisexual Network, Coyote, you're all familiar with that, Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics, and the San Francisco and Sex Worker Outreach Project. Welcome, Veronica. Oh, it's wonderful to be here, Richard. Thank you. Veronica, in the introduction, I said that you'd worked as a prostitute, an escort, and a courtesan. Please, what is the difference between those three? (laughs) Well, you know, mostly we just say sex worker. Some people do have a little issue with that. I, I wanted to call out the um, different ways there are to work in the sex industry because some of them are extolled in certain circles and some of them are vilified. But really, it's, it's it, as a political movement, it's all of one fabric. Um, when I first started working, I was a college graduate. I'd been clean and sober and uh, toast a program for many years. And, um, but it was kind of like working by the hour, you know, I had transferred from a secretarial job into, uh, prostitution. I, I called it escorting almost everybody in my, at my level, if you want to call it a level, this is, this is the problem with anything in, um, a capitalist society. Not that I'm against capitalism, but everything's hierarchical. So. Uh, and the sex industry, especially because there's so much shame and there's so much fear around law enforcement and um, and people's taboos um, and stigmas. So when I say prostitute, I'm basically wanting to identify with those people. When I say escort, I'm, um, you know, really, if you look up the word escort in the dictionary, it means to go somewhere with someone. So. If you're doing what they call in-calls, somebody comes to your place, you're not actually escorting them anywhere. Um, and I started off with the in-call. Uh, then I started doing out-calls or to actually go to somebody's home, still not really going anywhere with them. And eventually I started escorting people to uh, dinner, you know, uh, theater, uh, symphony, uh, museums. And, and then courtesan is a very different uh, level. And that is uh, actually where my career in the sex industry took me. Uh, as a courtesan, you're actually more of a muse in some ways, uh, a confidant. Um, it's kind of borderline mistress, but not quite. So uh, I had a very select group of clients, a very small group of clients. As a courtesan, I would 
go on a, say, a three-day trip with one gentleman. I might fly out to New York or uh, Los Angeles or up to Seattle and spend a week with said gentleman uh, as his guest. And um, that's very different than how some sex workers are touring. They go into a city and they let everybody on their social media know that they're in that city and they can make an appointment with them and come to their hotel. This is a very different thing. You're the guest of one gentleman who prizes you as, as his closest confidant and he tells you things he doesn't tell anybody else. And uh, just so what happens? You end up developing a very personal relationship where you sometimes actually help him make some of his life and professional decisions. Uh, oh, much is more there, excuse me, is there, then there's a different amount of time than an escort, a prostitute, and a courtesan spend with their clients. Is that correct? You know, if we think about it in time, we're kind of, we're kind of dumbing down this whole process here. I, I want you to think about it more about how, what the level of interaction. So it, when I first started off working in what I would term as a prostitute, I'm, I'm thinking more about the hours. Okay, I spent an hour with this person um, and they're, I'm charging by the hour. When, when you get to being a courtesan, you're more like kind of charging by the day and you mm-hmm. don't, you're, not clock, you're not clocking in like you work for a factory. Um, it's, it's, it's much more about I spend time with this person. They give me this much money. We go to these places, you know, and it's, it's not so much focused on the time. That's, that's really or even what sex acts occur. So, for instance, I might have, I could think of one instance in particular. I traveled up to Seattle to spend a week with someone and there was no sex. Um, okay. mm-hmm. but, it's, but, it's, but it's still sexual. Now, what do yes. I mean by that? I mean, I mean that there's flirtation, there's warmth, there's a sexual vibe, but it doesn't always lead to sex. If you're working at the level of prostitute, um, that could happen that there wouldn't be any sex, but it's very rare. The focus is more on which sex act and how much time. And as you work into these quote unquote, I'm going to use, you know, quote marks here for higher level, because I don't, I don't want to in any way uh, put down any level of sex work. They're all valid. They're all should, you know, be shameless. Uh, They should all be legal. As long as we're talking about adults that are consenting and nobody's trafficked, but uh, at the courtesan level, it's kind of think about it more like if you had um, hired a professional. Here's an example I often have used. The difference between a barber and a hairstylist. Maybe you go in and you tell the barber, uh, please take a little off the edges, you know, and, and this is what I want. Uh, but then when you go see one of these fancy hairstylists that charge hundreds and hundreds of dollars, uh, like I used to do, um, they don't, they kind of don't want you to tell them what to do. They tell you what kind of a hairstyle you're going to get. Does that translate? Yes. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Yes, I, I can relate to it in my own profession because when I see a patient for an hour, I charge by the hour. And even if I see a patient for three or four hours, which I do, I'm still charging by the hour. 
But if I take a, a couple uh, for a residential weekend, so then there's a fee by the by the day or by the weekend, and it's a it's a different kind of arrangement, and it, it sounds exactly. uh, yeah, it's it sounds very similar. And uh, of course, when people come to me in groups. And for a whole week, then there's a charge for the week and they're not getting charged by the hour. That I understand. Um, so there was a transition in your life. You graduated uh, with honors from Oregon State and then you went on to do other work that I've read about. And it was sometime after that that you went into sex work. Um, what led to that transition? And, 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 and here's what I mean by what led to it. When, when I uh, interviewed uh, one of your colleagues, who's also, I know, a friend of yours, Norma Jean Almodover, uh, she told me that she'd been working as a policewoman in Los Angeles. And on a regular basis, when she was in the ro- locker room, the other cops were demanding uh, blowjobs uh, from her, and, and, and very aggressively so. And she said at one point, she said to herself, hey, if, if they're forcing me or almost forcing me, not quite, but, you know, pressuring me to do this, I'm going to start charging for it. And so that was her entrance into the world of sex work. What, what was your entrance? How did, how did that transition come about, please? Well, first of all, I, I love Norma James. She's a, a beautiful friend of mine and a mentor. Uh, I just have to say that on the air. Um, my experience is very similar, actually. So I, I worked in corporate America for seven years. I graduated uh, from college and went straight into a office manager position. Uh, and then I, trans- I, I did a lateral move to another company where I became a department manager. And then after that, I actually went um, uh, into radio for a brief stint and uh, worked as a um, marketing representative for a radio station in Santa Cruz, actually. So, and my experience in every single one of those jobs for all seven of those years was uh, two forms of gender bias that I found intolerable. Uh, One of them being that uh, my positions were denigrated. So I'll give you a, for instance, that first job where I was an office manager, they fired my uh, boss. And for an entire month, they routed all his phone calls and put all his paperwork on my desk, which, you know, was an added step they really didn't have to take. They could have just put me in his office. But God forbid I actually sit in the uh, royal chair. And they had all of his technicians come to my desk to be dispatched. Um, And the only thing they wouldn't let me do was sign their paychecks. That was it. Everything else fell on my shoulders for a month. I brought department revenue up that month. And my reward was I got to train my next boss. So, um, you know, granted, this is back a few years. So I'm hoping that things changed. But, you know, when I talk to young women today, there's a lot of things that are still the same. When I went to work for that radio station, My sales manager literally said to me, Veronica, you take this account. He likes a good looking pair of legs. Now, mind you, I was getting 10% commission on radio sales. And I thought, he's literally pimping me out. And of course, what did I, at that particular time, this is way before there's a Me Too moment, 
There's a way before H&R gets savvy to sexual harassment on the job. So I just, I had to take it. I mean, you know, if you want to work and pay your rent and eat, you, you deal with what's happening in the workplace. And um, I went and, you know, out to see that client. I, I didn't flirt with him. I didn't go out to dinner with him. I just went and tried to sell him spots on our radio station. And um, sure enough, he propositioned me. And uh, after making repeated attempts to get him to sign with us, he told me, the only reason I've been seeing you is because I wanted to date you. And I just, you know, at that point, I thought, well, if this is it, if this is how I'm seen and this is, then by God, I'm going to make money doing it. (laughs) And I'm going to cut out the middle man. So yes, it was, it was sexual harassment. I had briefly entertained the idea of possibly going into acting. I thought, you know, I'll get out of the office and, and let's let's maybe uh, do something about movies. And actually, acting didn't appeal to me as much as producing and writing film. So I'm down in Hollywood, out on a date. It's a it's a it's something that a friend of mine said, "Hey, you, you want to meet this big time Hollywood producer? Uh, no names here. I'm not even going to tell you which production house it was." But um, that's just one thing I do. I, I know how to keep people secrets. But the guy at the end of the evening, and, and I'm thinking, maybe we're going to talk shop. That would be fun. But no, he tried to kiss me, and I pulled away, and he looked at me, and he said, I thought you wanted to be an actress. And I said, actually, I don't. I want to be a writer. And I walked out. So it, it's a it's. It's interesting because people oftentimes assume that sex workers have no boundaries. And in my case, and in Norma Jean's case, it was actually the exact opposite. We had better boundaries than most. And we decided to make an expeditious decision about our income and our working conditions. So tell us about the first time you charged money for a sexual act. Well, I started working with my girlfriend. See, I'm bisexual. Um, and I was dating a woman who was working as an escort. And um, she was married. She had three kids. She was beautiful. She'd been a centerfold in some men's magazines. And um, I had no idea I was going to make the decision to uh, go into her profession. I really kind of initially, with my feminist ideology, I felt sorry for her. I thought it was very sad that this woman was allowing all these men to um, um, denigrate her. (laughs) But, you know, something I had been hanging out in feminist circles for so long, and I still consider myself a feminist, consider myself a feminist throughout my entire sex worker career, but it changed. My brand of feminism changed. And one of the reasons was this woman was so damn happy. She's just... She, was, she didn't do any drugs. I've never seen her even finish one glass of wine. She's just like a little health nut. She worked out every day and took very good care of herself. And she's just happy. And I thought, wow. I mean, isn't that one of the things we want out of life is happiness? And she's obviously found something that works for her. And initially, I just asked her, I said, could you teach me how to do what you're doing? And I want to highlight that. Okay. I'm the college graduate. I have seven years in corporate America. 
I have training as a manager. I have training in sales. I am asking this woman, this prostitute, to teach me how to do what she does. Most people would say, well, what's to learn? Well, there was a lot to learn, a lot to learn. This woman was a very successful entrepreneur. The first thing she did was say, no, I won't teach you because I don't want the responsibility. And then I said, well, then I'll just go do it on my own. And she knew that would have been a disaster. So she said, okay, okay, I'll, I'll show you how. And the first thing she did was trot me down uh, to City Hall and, and got my tax uh, ID so that I would start paying quarterly taxes on it. Amazing, huh? Most people think that uh, sex workers are outlaws. She was very much wanting to adhere to the law as much as she could, while, of course, disobeying this one misdemeanor. Um, and we start doing doubles. And what is, what is a double? That's two girls and a guy in our case. You know, I suppose it could be two guys and a girl, but that's kind of a rare uh, configuration. So it was, you know, it, in all honesty, what drives the uh, sex industry is male, male clients. There are, I've had female clients. I've had, uh, you know, um, trans clients, but by and large, um, it's male identified people who drive the industry. So they sometimes are looking for two girls. And that's what we did at first. We'd, we'd put on girl, girl shows and make love with each other in front of the client. And um, it was a lot of fun. And because, then, because did I she... understand Richard, I was, al- I was already making love with her to actually do it in front of somebody and get paid for it. Wasn't a big stretch. And when this was going on, uh, let's say uh, in front of the man. Uh, in yeah. fact, that's that's actually what it was. What was she uh, at times literally giving you directions on? I don't mean in terms of you two making love with each other, but in terms of when to to bring the man into it or how to act towards the man. Did she give you literal directions on on things to do and how to behave? I followed her lead. It's yes. not. It's not. It's not an overt thing. Okay. What a, here's the thing about sex work. It's, um, it's quite a, um, you know, I want to use the word performance, but people will use that then to say, oh, somehow or another, it's fake. And that's not true. Think about it. When you go to see a play, do you say, oh, that's fake? No, you say, wow, what a grand performance. What a, I felt transfixed. I felt transported. Uh, I, I had all these emotions come up. It was a, a full, amazing experience. I can't wait for you to go see it so you can understand what I mean. That's what I mean when I say performance. It's a beautiful flow, an energetic gift that you're bringing to the client. And and when you're doing that, you certainly don't want to be stilted or artificial or or um cold or detached you want to be fully present and engaged and um bringing to it sensuality and beautiful emotions and feeling and content so but it's still a performance because your eye is on the audience and the audience is the client and you want right. to make sure that they have an amazing experience hopefully a peak sexual experience Yes. And at the same time, if you're working by the hour, you still have a little bit of your consciousness on the clock because oh, you, yes. right. Well, and that has an effect as well. 
How is that different than a stage performance where everybody, you know, has their little, they know exactly where they're going to step on the stage because somebody's marked that off with tape and they know exactly when the act ends, when the oh, audition yes. is, and the, and the play has to end on time. So, sure. yeah, sure. of course, time is a factor. <laughs> so now take us to the time when you were alone with your very first client. That oh. must have been that must have been a bit I'm guessing now, I'm not positive, but I must I'm guessing that that must have been a big experience in your life because you no longer have your friend and you're now either going into the room or a hotel room or in a house of a complete stranger, or you've invited a complete stranger to your place to what you call an in call. What do you recall that very well, first Well that's that's how most people would envision it, but that's not actually how it was. So, you know, my girlfriend loved me. She cared about me. So she, the first time I saw a client by myself, she had actually already screened this person. She knew them and she could tell me a little bit about what they liked and a little bit about their, their history and their personality and what they did for a living. So I didn't go see a stranger. I went to see somebody that was a friend of my girlfriend's. And uh, the experience for me was still very shocking, though. And I'll, I'll tell you how it was. I just was taking my assumptions from my white-collar jobs, where when I got employed, somebody handed me a job description and told me what my job duties were. So I had this assumption that male clients would be telling me what to do. And that's not what happened for me. Now, I'm not saying that some other sex worker has had other experiences or that there's different kinds of clients out there, but the kind of clients that my girlfriend saw that she then had come see me or had me go see, depending on the situation, was that these people were expecting me to be the professional, expecting me to tell them what's going to happen, expecting me to create the experience. And that is what was unnerving for me because I didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't have the all the background that I currently have in sex. Sure, I'd had sex, but I have to tell you, the professional sex worker has got so much expertise and knowledge and experience, and I lacked that at the beginning. And I was a little bit dumbfounded about, well, what do I do? And what, how do I make this session go? So I, I uh, very quickly went and got myself educated. That's why I took all those classes in Tantra and sacred prostitution. And because I needed to figure out what, what is it actually that defines my profession? And I had no idea that the men were going to just basically um, kind of lay there and expect me to, to do whatever it was I was going to do and tell them what to do. That was a shock. So but it what, was a really, it was a welcome shock. So what, <laughs> like, yes. oh my God, somebody wants me to be in charge. So what you're saying in effect is that you did what almost all of us do when we're going into a new job is you went out and you got, you took classes, you took classes in Tantra, you took classes in human sexuality to learn uh, what other people had to teach. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's a little known fact about the sex industry is that 
almost all sex workers, uh, at least once, let's, let's talk about the ones who work for themselves, because I have no idea what it's like when, when you're working for somebody else. Even though I, for the first nine months in the sex industry, I technically worked for my girlfriend, it's a really warm, loving relationship. And um, it's more like I was working with her. And she's, she's, you want to know what the things that this woman taught me were basically um, how to screen a call so that uh, you could tell if this was an undesirable potential client or a desirable client, and also how to tell if uh, law enforcement was calling you. What's the difference between an, an actual client and somebody who's pretending to be one? So that was a huge part of the training to pay your taxes. Don't ever cheat the tax man. Next lesson. And then also how to apply a condom in an unobtrusive and sensual way. Those are the three big things she taught me. Veronica, it seems to me that a, 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 a person going into this business for the first time, <clears throat> even after having a mentor like you did in this lovely friend of yours uh, for, for yeah. seven or nine months, which gave you quite a bit of experience, I'm sure. But in those initial experiences, when you went to a man's apartment or a or hotel room or wherever, there has to be, I mean, it doesn't have to be, but I'm assuming that there was a certain fear factor involved. Am I incorrect? I mean, weren't you a bit scared? I mean, you're an educated woman, and you know as well as I, that's roughly, we don't know the exact numbers, but somewhere between 60 and 75% of sex workers have been raped at some point. And we do know that a certain percentage, much more than the average woman, of sex workers have been hit by by uh, people that either they didn't vet well enough or who knows what an aberrant behavior. So I would assume that that led to a certain amount. How did you deal with that? Or did you not have, were you, are you fearless? Or how did you deal with that, uh, with, with the fear factor? Well, let's talk about those statistics for a minute, Richard. Um, as you know, I'm a sex worker rights activist. So I'm, yes. I'm real familiar with those statistics. I'm very familiar with those statistics, and I know where the data comes from. So a lot of that um, data is mined, if you will, from street prostitutes. And if you are working on the streets, it, it doesn't matter if you're selling drugs or you're selling your sex or um, you're selling, uh, I don't know, stolen radios. What, if you're selling something on the street, your risk of violence is increased dramatically. And the parts of cities where they will allow street prostitution to take place and only occasionally come through and sweep people up and take them to jail are some of the most dangerous parts of town. The type of people who go to see prostitutes are oftentimes dangerous people. And somebody who's working in the streets is really exposed to those sort of elements. But an independent escort who is screening her calls and has the freedom because she works for herself to say yes or no based on an intuition or a whim, who isn't living hand to mouth, who isn't doing survival sex, is not going to conform to those statistics. Her rate of violence or her exposure to violence is 
far, far reduced. And I'm going to tell you, I have a background in domestic violence. I was trained as a domestic violence counselor when I was going to college. And I work with clients who suffer from domestic violence today. The incidence of violence really is much more when you are in intimate relationships. And this is one of the things that probably fires me up more than anything, Richard, is the way that we demonize people who are marginalized in society as being vectors of disease, of being the, uh, the place where violence occurs, because we don't want to look at the violence in our own homes. But I can tell you right now that what was far more dangerous to me was college. And nobody's ever told me, weren't you scared to go to college? They have a, a mythology about being frightened of sex work. I found sex work to be far, far, far safer. Than going to college. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and, and for me, the numbers bore that out. During my, my college days, I was raped twice. As an escort, I worked as an escort. I worked for 17 years and I had the misfortune towards the end of my career of booking a client with a serial rapist. And that was the least traumatic rape I ever experienced. College was far more traumatic. I was, I was raped by a coworker when I was working in telecommunications that was probably the scariest encounter I ever had. So I'm a rape survivor, and any rape in any venue is a serious matter. I don't want to downplay the serial rapists who prey on sex workers, because that's, that's what I encountered towards the end of my career. But, you know, if you're going to talk about incidents of rape, we know that we have got a high incidence of rape happening on college campuses but people would rather look at the sex trafficking thing and their inflated statistics about the violence that occurs because they just look at street prostitution and not all of the independent escorts who a lot of them are going to work for years and never, ever encounter a rapist. And as far as being hit by a client, you're far, far more likely to be hit by your boyfriend or your husband. And that's a fact. You went into so sex. Was I, was I afraid? Was I afraid? Yes. At first, at first, sure. I'm thinking, well, what am I getting into here? And I, I am part of the culture and I believe those statistics. And I think that, that these people are probably right, that it's a dangerous profession. But the truth is, I felt a lot safer and a lot more in control of my life in the sex industry than I ever did as a young girl in college or those first few years of working in corporate environments where I was being um, sexualized and sexually harassed or, you know, and, and feeling powerless, feeling like I had no voice. Here, as a sex worker, if I didn't like somebody, I walk away from them. Mm-hmm. I hang up on them. Okay, I've got two more questions, and then we're going to take the next half of the interview for your book. Uh, the first, okay. que- the first question is: uh, Is the sex worker uh, yourself, the, your colleagues, 
Is their first line of defense against disease condoms? Absolutely. And, and, and any professional uh, worth his, her, their salt um, knows how to use a condom like nobody's business. So if you look at the box of condoms, it'll tell you that there's a failure rate of about uh, 5%. Uh, so it's not considered the most effective form of birth control, but it is considered um, your best defense against disease. Yes. But if you're gonna if you're gonna say that it's got that kind of a failure rate for birth control, you gotta think it's probably got that failure rate for protection from disease. But the truth is, is that the people who put that statistic on their box are measuring use with amateurs. Now imagine that you use a condom multiple times a day. You're going to get pretty darn good at it. And what that means is that you're going to have a far, far reduced failure rate. So yes, latex barriers of all sorts, including uh, finger cots, uh, condoms, uh, latex gloves, and also um, something called a dental dam, which is used during cunnilingus. Okay. Next, last question before we go to your book uh, is what advice do you have? Uh, well, I'm going to back up on that question. You, you you had, from my perspective, a certain advantage in going into sex work in that you went into sex work at, when you were about 29 or 30 years old because it was seven or so years after you graduated from college. That's very different than a girl going into sex work when she's 20 or 21 because she's got a lot less maturity behind her. What recommendations do you have today to a woman who wants to go into sex work? Well, first of all, Richard, to answer your question, if I were to give advice for anybody that wants to go into sex work, then the government could unfortunately consider that uh, some kind of conspiracy charge. Oh, oh. And say that, I, that, that, that I'm engaging in sex trafficking because I just gave advice on how to do sex work. So, so I don't actually give advice to anybody. I don't mentor anybody at all, ever. But I will say this, that I personally believe nobody should go into the sex industry until they are college educated and uh, completely capable of making money some other way. That said, that's not always possible. There are people who go into it because they feel like they have to, and particularly runaways, underage runaways. You see all this child sex trafficking statistics. They're just talking about runaways who probably ran away from an abusive parent who might have been sexually abusing them, and they wind up on the streets, and they can't get a job because they don't have uh, a job record. They don't have a, a resume. They don't have any education or experience. They don't have even ID or perhaps immigrants. So for those people... Um, survival sex becomes something that they have to do in order to survive. And, you know, for those populations, I think it's really important that we find ways to give them alternatives so that nobody ever has to do sex work. If somebody's choosing to do it, um, by all means, please take self-defense. Why? You'll never need it, probably, but you will carry yourself with confidence. Uh, And that's really important. One of the statistics that I like to point people towards is that somebody who lacks confidence is more likely to be a rape victim. Um, As a matter of fact, they did a study where they asked convicted rapists in prison, uh, which of these women would you most likely pick on? And 
it was surprisingly not the girl dressed in scanty clothes who's walking down the street like, don't you dare mess with me. It was the girl that was demure and kind of had her shoulders humped over and is shuffling her feet down the street that was more likely to be targeted. Yeah, so that, if you want to be, you, you want to have lots of confidence, yeah. and lots of resources <clears throat> and lots of options because then, yes, you're absolutely right, Richard. I walked into this with tremendous privilege. I was college educated. I was clean and sober and I had all that experience. I knew I could go out and get another job in any field I wanted, any day I wanted. Yeah, so, well, that jives with yeah. other information we have on pickpockets and people who, uh, you know, grab and run. They pick people who look more like victims. So now let's talk about your great book. And I say great book because I've read the book carefully. I think it is really a great book. Sex Secrets of Escorts. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, you did a really you, you did a really good job here. There's There's a lot of. A lot of excellent material. And in addition, one of the things I love is you you actually list certain things in one chapter. We'll get to it. You know, you list 10 different things that people can do, which people want it, want when they get a book. You know, they want a how-to. But let's start out with, with some of your thoughts on male culture and what male culture brings to the sex work uh, relationship. Well, of course. Now, so my book was written about 17 years ago, and I just want to say the culture continues to evolve. And um, we have increasingly, depending on what generation you pertain to, uh, more and more fluid definitions around gender. So, but, but let's talk about uh, dominant paradigms around cisgender males. In general, there is... Um, there's a lot of focus on performance in males. And this was always astounding to me. Somebody was like paying me for sex and still worried about their performance, still worried about uh, proving that they're a man and whatever that means to that particular human being. And oftentimes it means that somehow or another, they've got to um, maintain an erection and uh, they've got to make sure they don't come too quickly. And, you know, it's okay to have some of those kind of benchmarks in one's sexuality, I suppose. But unfortunately, sex is not a cerebral event. It's an energetic flow. And people are oftentimes focused on, uh, I'm doing this particular sex act, as opposed to what kind of energy am I bringing to this? How am I showing up for this energetically? So as an escort and a courtesan, my focus was very much on getting men energetically embodied, helping them to connect with their breath, bringing their chakras alive, um, and, and really helping them uh, relate to their own chakras and their own pressure uh, points. So it's unfortunately male sexuality, and I think that's still true today, uh, it's very penile-centric. And that's, people will complain that that means that the man's being selfish. I would say, I would counter that to say that men don't actually enjoy sex as much as they could because they're so focused on their performance and their penis. Well, when you read the literature on male sexual activity, one, one thing that has very, been very constant over decades is that the average man 
uh, orgasms and ejaculates in a few minutes. Um, and that is, has been, been an issue that's been discussed. I'm sure I know you're familiar with the literature as well. It's led to problems because, as you point out, men become aware of the fact that they're orgasming quickly and then the woman is left hanging. And uh, also the literature says that um, after males have their orgasm and ejaculation, like all the other animals, uh, you know, in the barn, they are, are no longer interested. Now, as what have you found in your personal uh, discovery over a 17-year period with regard to that event? Well, I mean, it takes some re-educating. It takes some re-educating um, because the the dominant culture has definitely made penis vagina sex the 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 main event. So, for instance, you just said he, he ejaculates and then the woman's left hanging. Well, why is she left hanging? You still have a tongue. You still have fingers. Uh, you maybe have some sex toys. She shouldn't be left hanging. If if you think that your penis is the center of the world and that without a penis, an erect penis, there can be no sex, then I have no idea what the lesbians are doing. Um, <laughs> but Because it's sex. Sex happens without a penis. So if if you think that the penis is the center of sex, then, of course, you're going to think once it's not erect, oops, everything's over. Well, that lacks imagination and it lacks um, reality. Reality Well, uh, Veronica, if if you look at the other animals in the barn, when the male uh, uh, orgasms and ejaculates, he, he immediately pulls away and goes and takes a walk or a hike and disappears. And if we translate that onto male behavior, it's not just a matter of that he could inv- get, stay with, as you're pointing out, well, well said, he could do other things like cunnilingus and so on and, and, and affection. But if, if, if psychologically, as soon as that event happens of the orgasm, he's like finished, turned off psychologically, then there's no motivation to continue whatsoever. And I'm wondering, like, well, if a man, if a man well, hires, if a man hires uh, a woman for an hour, and he comes after four and a half minutes. What do you do with the other 55 minutes? Lots. Um, <laughs> believe, be, believe me, Richard. Well, I do me. believe you. I, you're I, the, I believe you. You're the expert. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's not just a matter of what I do. It's a matter of what he does. So, so look, I, I can remember one guy who ejaculated when I opened the door. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, he didn't say, well, thank you, ma'am. Here's your money and walk away. Of course, he was still interested. Uh-huh. He was embarrassed, but he was still interested. So this whole idea that a man's not going to be interested after he ejaculates is not my experience. Okay. That's important to know. That's <laughs> not, not my experience. And, and furthermore, I want to say, I just want to say, let's, let's brought, since you brought in animals, um, our closest genetic cousin is the bonobo. And a bonobo looks like a chimpanzee, but it's very, very different from a chimpanzee. They're incredibly sexy. Uh, they're having all kinds of sex all the time. And they don't just have intercourse. And they don't just rely on an erect penis for their sexual gratification. Bonobos actually engage in cunnilingus. They engage in fellatio. And they also uh, do something we oftentimes refer to as frottage, where the females rub their clitorises together. There's all kinds of sex going on in the animal kingdom, particularly with this primate that's our closest cousin. And the, the idea 
that men lose interest in sex just because they ejaculated. Well, for those guys who do that, I feel sorry for them, but it's, it's not biologically uh, mandated. And it's not even my experience having, you know, seen hundreds of men. So I, I don't know about that particular story, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm, um, as, a, mm-hmm. as, a, as a sex expert, I'm going to say, no, nah, I don't believe it. And talk to us about the issue of vulnerability in the sexual relationship. You talk about that in your book. Yeah. One of the things that really touched my heart was seeing. So you got to understand, I'm dating a woman. I'm, a, I'm definitely a, a feminist and, and I'm, I'm kind of like identified with the, what we would call the feminists who aren't sex positive. Um, it's like down on men. That's how I come into the sex industry. And that very quickly changes, Richard, because of how vulnerable and sweet and um, emotional I can count, I, I experience my clients being. Now, am I saying all sex worker clients are that way? No, I'm just telling you all of mine were. They, 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 sometimes they would cry in my arms after they had an orgasm. And I was really touched and moved by this. And I was thinking, wow, men are far more vulnerable and sensitive than I ever thought they were. Now, I had had sex with men before I went into the sex industry. I think I would have exposed, been exposed to this. But one of the things that I discovered as a sex worker was that the men who paid me for sex were far more honest and far more vulnerable. And, and stop, they dropped the facade. The guys that I dated in college we're always trying to be so macho and prove whatever they were trying to prove. And here, as a sex worker, I got to see this very human, very human, vulnerable side of men. And so it was as a sex worker that I fell in love with men. Are are we still there? I can you hear me? Oh yes, I can hear you now. I, I yeah. thought I thought we went off the air or something there for a minute. <laughs> okay, good. So it sounds like what you're saying, and correct me if I'm off here, is that there's a lot more room for men in all relationships to allow their own vulnerability to come through. Oh. Well, you know, I can't say every woman's going to respond the way I did, but when men are vulnerable, I just melt. Yes, I, and I, th- I think I think that is one of the things that, you know, I'm, I've been a relationship coach now for 17 years. And um, I often encountering this, I, there's two things that I see with the married couples that I work with and, and also the couples that live together. But I'm talking about people that have been together 10, 20 years. Is that a lot of times the cisgender women are focused on how they look and they don't seem to know much about initiating sex. They don't seem to know much about how to uh, do foreplay. And that's actually something that I teach in my book is I really wanted women to, to move away from that and start initiating, start expressing their desire overtly 
Um, I can't tell you how many men tell me that their wife or their girlfriend just kind of hints that they're interested, like maybe they put on a sexy outfit. And I'm like, well, what's wrong with actually saying I would love to make love with you? What, seduce the man with your words and your actions. Don't just try to be the flower attracting the honeybee, as it were. The other thing that I see is that oftentimes um, the men are so focused on maintaining the power dynamic that they're trying to have in that relationship. Maybe they consider themselves the provider, the breadwinner, the protector. Um, even if they both have um, jobs, they're both as a two-income uh, household, and they like to think of themselves as egalitarian and you know sharing all decisions and sharing power. I still see this power dynamic come into play where there's there's some way in which masculinity becomes a performance. And if you're performing masculinity in your relationship, and a lot of men do, then you're going to be less vulnerable. And that creates um, that creates a distance, especially during the sex act. People oftentimes revert to their proscribed gender roles, which is to me very sad. I mean, mix it up. Um, there's a saying in the BDSM community, we call it switching, which means there's a submissive role that you could take, or you can take the dominant role. And if you switch, you know how to inhabit both places. And I think it would do a lot of um, heterosexual cisgender couples a lot of good if they could learn how to switch uh, back and forth between leading and following. It, it, it becomes, a, the sex becomes a dance, man, a beautiful dance. And, and when you mix it up like that, everybody gets to uh, express their masculine side and their feminine side to be vulnerable and receptive and to also be hungry and, and um, have that animalistic passion rise to the surface. It's a beautiful dance. We've got about 10 minutes. You give 10 <laughs> tips in your book, and I'd like to get through as many of them as possible starting with your number one tip, which I think is just spectacular. Get clean. Tell us about your, let's go through your tips together, Veronica. <laughs> get clean. Get okay, clean. Okay. All right. All right. That, that came out of years of, of, of working with men who sometimes um, didn't seem to know how to clean themselves down there, you know? Do, do um, I know? Um, I've interviewed some people in your business, <laughs> and one of the biggest complaints I've heard is, oh, my God, this guy, we smelled like a garbage can. His breath was like old tomatoes. His penis, he doesn't seem like he cleaned it in 10 years. I couldn't stand it. You know. So, yes, I've heard. Oh, and that's let's, why. And let's, not for, and let's not forget toilet. Some exactly. And that's know, why I, that's why I know how to toilet themselves properly. Exactly. That's um, why I, that's why when I read this, that you start with get clean. I loved it. Let me say this. If you are the kind of guy who has skid marks in your underwear, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> I think that yeah, says learn, it about getting learn, clean. Learn how to clean yourself back there, because if you really, really want her to go down on you, um, she doesn't want to smell like she is kissing the toilet. Well, you're not allowed to give you're not allowed to give <laughs> advice to sex workers. And you made a good point because it could be seen as you're doing, you know, conspiring or something illegal. But I can give advice because I'm a doctor of clinical psychology. And I'm saying if you're a sex worker reading this, I think you have a right to demand that a guy take a shower and, and really clean up good. <laughs> 
So let, let's. Well, I, let's I'm, hoping, I'm hoping wives and girlfriends also have the right to say that to their husband or their boyfriend. Uh, you have stinky butt. Do something about it. Exactly. Let's move on to number two. Be attentive. <laughs> you start with everyone wants yeah. to feel special. Yeah. So, so here's the thing. One time I got married. You know, I was married most of the time I was working as an escort. Remember I told you I fell in love with men as an escort? I ended yes. up marrying one very early on. Did you so have you husband, had did, did you have children with him? Uh, he came with children. Oh, that's right. He so he came a, with he came with two. Yep, and I I had a parenting journey with them. Yeah, the toddler to teen. Yeah, it was beautiful, and I I loved them. Yeah, but so so um, one of the things about I wanted to hire a prostitute for him and I because uh, you know we were swingers, we were having a good time. So we went to see this prostitute, and it's like she just laid there. <laughs> I was like, what, what What? are you doing? I mean, I just paid you. You're laying there like you're God gift, God's gift to the world. So, and, and this is the script for a lot of women. It's the gender script that they're given. I don't fault them for that, but they kind of are trying to play the good girl. Um, or maybe they're playing the diva. I don't know. But I think it's just so important that women break free of this idea of of just laying there and allowing i've allowed you access to my body it's like you know get up and do something be engaged initiate um be creative but of course you know you've got to have some techniques so if you don't go study and learn um and that's what i mean by that most men in my experience even when they're paying for sex are and they are attentive they're so attentive and eager to please and all they want to know is how, what does the woman want and what would make her feel better? Now, are there some selfish guys out there? I'm sure. But, you know, of course, I wasn't working with them. And my experience has been most men are eager to please. Mm-hmm. Number three, be interesting. Talk to us about a woman's being interesting or a man being interesting for that matter. Yes. Okay. So, so uh, there's a, a lot of, a story I think about uh, women listen to men. They listen to their, you know, but they don't know how to actually tell their own stories. They don't know how to actually uh, be a, a dynamic player in their own their own movie. And so to break free of that and actually have something intelligent to share, that's actual sexual foreplay. I know because as a courtesan. I would go out to dinner with a gentleman and we'd talk over uh, dinner for like five hours of conversation before we ever went back to his hotel room. So intellectual um, conversation is a fabulous form of foreplay. Be informed is your next tip. Talk to us about the importance of being informed and how it relates to sexuality. If you have something interesting to say, then you're a much more intriguing person. I have a theory about infidelity, um, and it does not conform to Esther Perel's. We just all want variety. I'm, I'm, I have a different take on this. I actually think that people start to take each other for granted, and they think they know everything there is to know about their partner, so they stop asking questions. And so the first thing you should be informed about is this year's version of your partner. 
ask them. Don't just assume you know what kind of foods they like, what music they like, uh, and everything there is to know about them. Because one of the things that will happen is that somebody at the office is probably going to be interested and ask a bunch of questions. And then that's where the flirtation happens. You start actually feeling like the other human beings interested in you and cares about you and sees you as the person that you are this year, not the person you were 20 years ago. And, and that's oftentimes where an office romance will start. So being informed about each other is, is really important. That means that what? Oh, oh, you have to be curious. So ongoingly, you need to exercise curiosity and also about yourself and about the world. Um, if you kind of get yourself into a relationship rut where you take everything for granted because it's comfortable, there's really only two directions anything can go on this plane. It is either growing and evolving or it is um, dying. So if you want your relationship to be vibrant and your sex life to be vibrant, get informed by being a very curious person. Ask lots of questions. Don't take things for granted. Your next tip is to become experienced. What do you mean by experience? Do you mean experience at sex or experience at a lot of things? I was When I wrote that, I was specifically talking about experience around sex. Um, and I was, this, you know, this book was targeting uh, female readers. And um, at that particular time, a lot of women lacked sexual experience, especially the target for that particular book. They wanted me to target housewives in Ohio. <laughs> so so I, that's who I wrote it for. But I, but I think this pertains to all of us. Look, having sexual experience doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be promiscuous and have sex with as many people as I did. It doesn't hurt. And I'm not going to say you shouldn't if you feel called to do that. But if you don't, if that's not your uh, cup of tea, then you can get sexual experience by learning about your own body, for one. That would be a great place to start. Don't just expect your partner to figure it out. You should be spending a certain amount of time self-pleasuring so that you get to know yourself and what it is that you like. And also because it's not a matter of telling your partner, oh, I like it this way and I like it that way. It's really about developing your connection to all of those neurons. And that's something that it takes time to develop. So if you learn how to breathe and how to uh, move into sensation with yourself, that's going to translate into a much better partnered sex life. Um, so I would say your first place of experience is probably as close as your hand and maybe any kind of sex toys that you want to, to gift yourself with. But take some Tantra and you don't have to go to a class. You can find it online. Learn about how to pair your breath with sensation. That would be the best, most fruitful line of experience that you could have. Learn how to pair your breath with your sensation. I think that's excellent advice. And the and the advice you're giving about your hand, it matches identically with uh, my dear friend, Dr. Stella Resnick, who's written some books on human sexuality. She's a psychologist in L.A. And she said the exact same thing you did. She said, if you don't learn how to pleasure yourself and figure out what you like, how can you possibly expect your partner to figure it out? 
It's like offering them a multiple choice game until, you know, endlessly. Be adventurous is something that you recommend. What does it mean to be adventurous sexually? Well, it's going to mean different things to different people. But the idea of opening your mind, like try something new. Um, Why not? Why not allow your... You know, you have, here's the thing about sexual adventurism. You got to break free of sexual shame. So if you feel embarrassed and you feel frightened and, and, and one of the things, you know, you'd asked me about the fear factor of becoming a sex worker. I think by definition, sex workers are adventurous people. And so, you know, it's for a lay person to imagine doing sex work is scary for them, but um, not so much for sex workers because, they, they're risk takers and they're adventurous people and, and they have a certain level of confidence too. And, and with that confidence, eventually you develop competence. But, but, but in your day-to-day life, with, if, you're, if you're in a monogamous situation and even if you're not, but, and you know, there's more and more couples that are opening up their relationships. So there's a lot of ways to be sexually adventurous. You can try new things if you want, but you could also be adventurous by taking risks in the relationship, Richard, because you know, one of the things that causes the sex life to become stale is that people stop taking risks with each other in their interpersonal connection. Oh, it's not worth talking about that because it's just going to lead to a fight. So never mind. You do that a lot of times over the course of 10 or 20 years, your sex life is guaranteed to die because there is no risk in the relationship. You are playing it safe. And what that means is that you're also being disingenuous. You're not really showing up to be your authentic self. So the first adventuresome, I would say, is take, take the, the risk and roll in the adventure your truth and finding out what your partner's truth is and of actually learning some creative ways of doing um, conflict management in the relationship, taking on the things that you don't want to argue about anymore, you know, go see a, a, a counselor or a therapist for that too. And if you, if you do that, if you become the person who can take risks in conversation it's going to be so much easier when you actually have sex with each other to take the risk of sharing what your desire is, of being adventuresome around uh, introducing maybe a, a, a fantasy that you never shared with anybody because you were scared to. What do you say to couples who seem to have a fear or aversion to oral sex, uh, such as men who are either afraid of or have an aversion to cunnilingus or, or women who are afraid to allow their man or their lover, their, their, whoever it is, most likely their man, uh, to, uh, they're afraid to allow their man to, to, uh, to lick their genitals. Well, we have, we have a lot of shaming around female genitalia. Um, oh, it's, it's dark, it's dirty, it's ugly, it's, it's smelly, it's, it's whatever. Um, and you, 
it's important to reframe that. It's important to realize that the vulva is the first religion. The vulva is sacred. It is a place where life can emanate from. And if you think about it, it's a portal to the other side. And it's an amazing, amazing um, creation, evolution, however you want to look at that. But it has so many moving parts to it and so much beauty to it. And if you can become inspired by the vulva, if you can really start to see it and learn about all of its intricacies and its responses, and I'm going to get a, a, a shout out to a fabulous book by a colleague of mine, uh, Women's Anatomy of Arousal by Sherry uh, Winston. If you get a chance to read that book, it will just blow your mind about the vulva and its sexual response. The book is all about arousing the female member. Members, really, because it's so complex. But that's the first thing. And whether the man is reticent or the woman is shy, uh, finding out and really coming to understand the vulva is that first step because it's unfortunately been kept kind of mysterious and hidden. And, and that's the other thing. I love referring to nature for examples about healthy sexuality. So um, oral sex, particularly cunnilingus, cunnilingus more than fellatio. Fellatio is actually kind of rare in the animal kingdom. The bonobos do it. Um, but um, most animals don't actually orally copulate with the male member, but almost all animals perform cunnilingus. That's always a prelude to sexual intercourse. So if you're looking for examples, there's just hundreds of thousands of examples out there of mammals who perform cunnilingus and do it very well. I know I had a mated pair of dogs and that was my female dog's favorite sex act. She just loved cunnilingus. <laughs> talk, talk to us about the place of being assertive in your sexual behavior. Oh, yeah. So it's probably true that most cisgender males don't need uh, lessons in assertion. They they need to learn to be more receptive. Um, and not so that they can please her, but so that they can please themselves, so they can learn how beautiful it is to receive. But a lot of cisgender women actually do um, shy away from being assertive because They've been taught to kind of hold back and be the gatekeeper, the gatekeeper who says yes or no. If you're in that position, it, think about it. A gate only allows or denies entrance. That's all the gate does. It doesn't do anything else. So if you think of yourself as the person who says yes or no, then you're a gatekeeper. And that is a really dull way to approach sex. You want to be think assertively. If you are taking an active role, if you're asserting that I would really love to have sex or I'm not in the mood for sex now, but I might be in the mood for sex later. And if I'm in the mood for sex, this is the kind of sex that I would like. This is the sex that I enjoy. This is what I'd like to do. As a matter of fact, the more I think about it, the more this is what I'd like to do to you. 
or for you or with you. So, so that you're actually stepping into that, owning it, being it, breathing it. Um, and of course, it always comes with the responsibility to want to know, to be curious about how is my assertion, how is the thing that I'm doing impacting the other person? Are they enjoying it? Are they not enjoying it? Are they frightened? You've got to really become adept at reading body language. So that, and, and throughout the sex act, always be tuned in to your partner, paying attention to their breathing, what's happening with their eyes, their facial expressions, their body. Is it tensing up? Is it relaxing? What's happening? So it's a full body experience. And that in itself, showing up to notice is also being uh, very present and assertive. You, you have a beautiful way of describing the sexual act and sexual behavior as being both a skill and an art form. And, uh, and I mm-hmm. bow to you for that. Uh, my last question before we end for this particular uh, time together is this. I'm guessing that you made a substantial amount of money whether you counted it by the hour or by the day or by the week as a sex worker. I'm imagining that you make, and since that time, you make quite a bit less as a relationship coach and as an anger management coach, which I know you also are. And I know you must make considerably less as a political activist for the good cause of advancing sex work and trying to legitimize it. How did you deal with that differential in pay? And weren't you at times ever tempted to go back and pick up some easy money? Ah, yes. You are being the psychologist now, and I feel read like a book. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so, 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 Richard. The reason people often ask me, why did you transition? And, and I, I'm a spiritually based person. Keep in mind, I was clean and sober for several years before I got into the sex industry. And I brought par- prayer to my work with my clients. And, and I just, I woke up one morning and I told my husband, I said, I'm going to stop escorting and I am going to sell the house and I'm going to move us to the mountains and, um, I'm going to write a book because it's time for me to write my book and the book deal is coming. And he's like, you're crazy. You can't just know that there's a book deal coming. That's ridiculous. I said, well, I do. And, and so I'm going to act upon that. And part of it was a career transition, like any other career transition. It was just time to move into the next thing. And part of it was also, I, as an activist had been on every major network and international television for years. You know, they say you get 15 minutes of fame. I had 17 years of major media exposure and I was getting recognized in the streets. And sometimes it was a little bit upsetting for me. I can remember one time when I was in a restaurant with my family and my children are there and, and the staff at the restaurant are all gathered at the door. They're pointing, they're, they're, they're looking at me because I'm the lady from TV. And that day, I even tried to wear a baseball cap, you know, to hide myself. There was no hope. I also was getting a lot of interference from law enforcement. 
I got arrested. I got audited. I was getting sick of that. It was the public exposure to that. I was just, I wanted yes. to go to the mountains and live in a cabin yes. for a while. Yes, <laughs> so, I, I, I can so relate I, to that. I very so much I can relate to it. Yeah, I can relate to that. You know, I, I always say that's my last question. And then I have another and I do have one more now because you tweak my memory about something well, with something you just yeah. said about being in the restaurant with your family and kids in preparing for yeah. this interview and, and in preparing for other interviews with people who are your colleagues. I've come across quite a few uh, sex workers who have said that both while they're working and even more so when they're transitioning, they've had an extremely difficult time because their kids have been made fun of at school or they've been pointed out in restaurants. And there's been a tremendous amount of shaming in their post-sex work life. And it's been extremely difficult for them to adjust. And, and some of the stories are, are heart-wrenching about the things that have happened where people have had to take their kids out of school because other kids are uh, shaming them about what their mothers uh, did for a living. And uh, mm. do you have any comments about that, Veronica? Well, you know, my children were stepchildren, and I think that they were more identified with their birth mother than with me. So it seems that they were fortunately spared that kind of suffering. Uh, my husband, however, would get um, mercilessly teased when he'd go to the office. He worked as a, a sales manager. And, um, you know, they would say, oh, saw your wife on Geraldo. Um, and things happen like the, the company Christmas party. There, there, there were, there were, they had to invite us, but there were other parties that we didn't get invited to. And it was, it was just weird the way people cut you out of their lives. Um, that should be the that worst thing that, that should be the worst thing that happened, not getting invited to a party. But the, <laughs> but the, but the, I mean, really, well, but, well, I, but, but, the, but you know something, it, it hurt my feelings. Well, of course, it hurt my feelings. of course, of course. <laughs> and yeah. anything you want to say right now about the effect of your sex work on your relationship with your husband? I mean, what it was it like for him? I'll, I'll tell you well, a cute, I'll, I'll tell you a cute story about that. Uh, I, I said to Norma Jean, when I interviewed her, I said, she was telling me about what a normal life she had with her husband. And, uh, you know, and I said, and she said, it was just like, you know, I went to work and he went to work and it was just very normal. And I said to her, are you telling me that you're sitting at the dinner table with your husband and your husband says to you, how was work today, darling? And you say to him, Oh, that last guy, he was like hung like a horse. And Oh, by the way, pass the salt, please. And it was just that, you know, so matter of fact. And she said, yes, it was. Well, well, I, I, I know her husband, Victor, and and I've, and I've had dinner with them and uh, yeah, it's the truth. (laughs) <laughs> just 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 two people that's how she makes it sound just two people going yeah. to work and after work they might talk a little about work and then they go on to other things oh i told my husband everything mm-hmm. i told my husband everything i i'd come home and i'd tell him oh my god this client he's amazing i couldn't believe it. i had such a good time we talked about this and we went here and we went that and he'd go that's great honey i'm really glad to had a great time 
Other times I'd come home and I'd say, you know, I don't think I'm going to see this guy anymore. He's a jerk. And I'd tell my husband why he was a jerk. And he'd go, okay, well, sounds like you probably shouldn't see him anymore. And, <laughs> and there were a couple of times that I'd say, look, I'm not sure I should go see this person because <clears throat> I've never seen them before. Would you listen to his voice and tell me, do you get a good feeling or a bad feeling? When mm-hmm, you hear his voice? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very yeah. smart. So, but my, my gosh, yeah. Veronica, after doing what you did during the day or in the evening to come home to your husband and then make love, you've got to have an Olympian appetite. No, no, I will tell you. Well, okay. Guilty as charged. I do have an Olympian appetite. <laughs> but, but let's get clear on one thing. My husband asked one thing of me. He asked me not to have orgasms with my clients. And I agreed to his terms. I said, okay, I won't have orgasms with my clients. So when I came home after work, I was incredibly aroused. And what that meant for my husband was I was ready to go. (laughs) And and he actually loved, loved it. He loved it. He had a horny wife. Veronica, that is the biggest sex secret of the escorts of all. And we're going <laughs> to, I, I, I got aroused all day long and I came home super ready and excited for my husband. I think it's a wonderful place to stop our interview. I want to thank you very much for being with me today. I'm sure we're going to continue. I look forward to it. It was a delight. You're a delight. Thank you so much, Richard. Take care. Stay on. David will have a few words for us. Okay, David, 